Can you please introduce yourself and describe what you do? My name is Marina Abramovich. I'm an artist, and I use different art forms to express my art. But the main art form is performance. But I also make transitory objects. I um, make uh, photographs, video installations, and recently film. I was born in ex-Yugoslavia, and um, that's what I do. Klaus uh, Biesenbach said that you, there's never a moment that you're not performing. Do you think that's true? I think Klaus Biesenbach exaggerates a lot. <laughs> because when I think really about somebody who really never performed, who always performed, it would be Gilbert and George. But I really have the private moments when I'm out of you know, view of the public, which I'm in the old T-shirt with the holes, preferably really old, because I like to be comfortable sitting in my countryside house and not answering any phone and just being myself. I need these kind of moments away from everybody and everything. But even in the front of people, I, it's not that I'm performing. I, I, I think that I, um, I, I'm not playing somebody else. I'm just me. So do you think then that there's a line between you and the work? I don't think so. It's really blurred. Maybe in the beginning of my career was a line, but then it's blurred completely. Because first of all, I always work from the, my experience. And then this experience, it's about me experience them. And then I try to translate that um, ideas into the work. And then I try to find the key that this experience become transcendental so that everybody can find himself in, inside that work and become universal. Because who cares about your own private life otherwise? And to find that kind of key, it's a really difficult job to do. You're you're so rigorous with it, though. Um, I mean, even to the point that you've you've made uh, a performance out of dying, and you're not dead yet, right? So you've already planned your funeral. Can you talk about that a bit? You know, I come from the culture which is uh, you know Balkan culture, and Slavic, and we are very much dramatic people, and uh, you know we always suffer for something. Like at least if we don't suffer. The personal level, then you you suffer for universe in generally, but also the dead is such a big part of our life and existence. Since I was child, my grandmother will always prepare her clothes for the moment when she's going to die and the clothes she's going to be buried. And I remember this for more than forty years. She will have different type of clothes as a fashion change. One day will be poker dots, then dark blue, then the beige was the big deal. Then after this, she went into the some little stripes, and then she got into brown, and she lived under three. So, in a way, she was always ready for that moment. And for me, thinking about that is is the the that is such a part of our life. Every single day, I think about dying. Every day, you're closer to your death. You just don't know when it's going to happen. And this transition, you have to be ready. And it's really important the way how to die. The three things I like to do, not to die, <clears throat> not to die angry, not to die in fear, and, and to die consciously. This is really what I like to achieve. And uh, there was one funeral I went from the really friend a lot so much. It was Susan Zontag. It was in Paris, in Père Lachaise. 
And it was such a lousy, sad funeral. I don't know, something was wrong with this funeral. You know, it was, I, I, after this, I say, okay, I think that she didn't give really description or the right instruction how her funeral is going to be. I'm not going to do the same with me. So I went from Paris straight to my lawyer and make very clear instructions. And instructions are like this. I like to be three marinas, the funeral of three marinas. Uh, of course, one is fake and, no, one, actually one is real and two is fake. And I want them to be buried in the different parts of the world where I live the longest, Belgrade, Amsterdam, New York. And nobody will know, you know, that what's going to be the real one. And I also love that everybody is in happy colors, wearing everything, not black. Black will be out, but like, you know, vibrant green and red and electric yellow and all, and so on. And there have to be celebration of life. And my biggest wish is to Anthony Johnson's or Anthony Haggerty or whatever he's called, he's changing his name all the time, who sing the, I did it my way from Sex Sinatra, but in his way. He never agreed to this, but I think he'll be so sad when I die that probably he will do it. I think what's so uh, what's so poignant about about that for me is it sort of encapsulates uh, what's so powerful about all of your work that there there is this really tight control on the on the experiment, on the performance, on on what you're doing, but that you're not trying to control the viewer in any way. And of course, once you're gone, you you can't control your audience. You, you won't know how it comes out. You know, the relation of the performer and audience, it's a long way of to look in the past. If you look in the 70s, performance was very vibrant, you know, the, the form of art. In the beginning, and the audience was sitting at the chairs and looking at the performer performing. And that, in many ways, didn't work for a long time. Because, first of all, if it's your friends and, and the performance is boring, you know, they get so obsessed, they can't leave because they feel self-conscious. And and then, you know, they maybe don't like it, but you give them a disposition of no freedom. And sometimes performance is, was interesting, then you just sit there. But it was very important to me later on to change this attitude between the audience and the performer. So, I, in the artist is present, I really create situation where the performer was not there was the the audience was not seen as a group but as individual and performer was one to one and then in five, five twelve hours in serpentine i changed all the rules altogether so the you know the performer is there but is also blend in with the public and the public is actually having experience and performing and now the latest performance i made called generator in sean kelly gallery is getting even more radical because here, you know, it's a commercial gallery and you come something to see or something to hear or something to buy. You can't see because you're blindfolded. You can't hear because you have the headphones blocking the sound. And of course you can't buy because it's nothing to buy. So it's getting more and more radical. And I think that's very important personal experience of audience. And uh, artists have to blend in or disappear. There's so many um, myths that surround your work. Um, it, you were just talking about the Serpentine piece, and it was interesting to me that there was all the noise um, about its relationship to Mary Ellen Carroll. Um, can you talk a bit about 
maybe not even that in particular or the controversy that 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 judged up but more how myth how myth plays into meaning with your work maybe more about what the myth how myth um, plays in but you know myth myths are, are present in almost every everywhere in every works in every gossips in in the, in the newspapers and things are truths and not truths you know my one of the favorite things in the, in the, in the past, there was this very famous Chris Burden piece called Transfix, where he actually crucified himself on Volkswagen with the golden nails. And, uh, and I remember I was in that time living in ex Yugoslavia, and the rumors came that he was crucified with the nails on Volkswagen. And then his friend was driving the Volkswagen in the streets of uh, Los Angeles, and then they'd been arrested, and so on and so on. And then many, many years later, when I really asked him about this piece, how it was, I said it was very simple. It was the three friends in the garage. They, you know, he gets crucified on the, with the golden nails on the backside of Volkswagen. They opened the door of the garage. They push the car outside and they took the photographs. They pushed cars inside, took the nails, and that was it. And that's such a big story. It was circulating around this piece and it was very different. And, you know, people love to make myths and love to make the true stories, untruths. And then also, performance is an immaterial form of art and it's time-based art. So if you're not there, you actually really don't know what happened because you only have the word of, word of mouth and some photographs and some video. So you can always make, made up a different story. And that stories are not necessarily true. But, you know, it's interesting how the myths are you know, making work of art, which actually nothing to do with work of art. Do you think, um, because here I have to, I have to ask, but, um, I was talking yesterday with an artist about, you know, the, the Judith Butler, Amelia Jones debate. Do, do you think that an artist has, or that the audience has to be present in order to really exper experience the work? Or do you think documentation is enough? No, for me, it's incredibly, it's crucial for me to audiences present because I can't, I will never do performance work without audience. There is only one actually work that I done without audience, but it was so much publicized that actually audience somehow was participating. It was walking the Great Wall of China, which I walked from the uh, Yellow Sea and my partner Ulai from the Gobi Desert. We walk in the middle and to say goodbye and each of us walked to enough thousand kilometers. Once the Willem Dafoe said to me, but why you just could not make phone call and, you know, and, and uh, end the relationship? It's a good idea. It never crossed my mind. I think I had to walk this wall to say goodbye. But the audience is very important because the audience actually complete the work. It's an energetic dialogue because the spectator and the, and the performer. And you're doing, you're giving message and the message had to be seen and heard. And without this, I don't see the point working on, with the performance. It's another thing that artists, you know, is working in seclusion of his studio, making the painting, and the painting go to hang on the wall, and the painting is the work, and artist doesn't need to be there to do anything. But if the, if the performer is a subject and object of the work, then performance needs audience. Wait, that... That sort of naturally brings me to think about um, what you're trying to do with the, the institute that you're building. Um, and that that's a place for people to, to 
sort of learn how to perform, but learn how to connect as well? Oh, Institute is a big, big subject. So let's talk about the Institute. First of all, as I'm obsessed with dying, as also obsessed about what you leave behind you. And the physical goods, who cares about them? But if you leave behind a good idea, this good idea can have many lives. So in my case, I want to leave good idea of this institute, which is not a foundation, because many artists make foundation about preserving their own work. In my case, institute is a much larger picture. It's a kind of marriage between art, science, and technology, and really is there to actually um, uh, deal with the, with the future and with the big picture of the future, where we are going now. You know, from my point of view, technology absolutely robs us of our time. Technology was invented that human beings have more time, but actually we, we, we just get trapped and we are not having any time. So the idea is how we can claim the free time for ourselves, the free time for our own mental, spiritual development and changing consciousness, because we can only change the world if we change the consciousness about things as they are now. So this institute, you know, has so many different purposes. One of the purposes is to deal different with the time. The second purpose is to learn the public how they can see something which is non-durational and to go over the boredom on themselves. And then the purpose, how they can, through that, actually change their own point of view on the world and what they can do with that new point of the world. And I'm really thinking, for me, it would be incredibly important to take, as the institute is going to be built in Hudson with the Remco House, um, the drawings, and, and um, you know, the, the project is to be in Hudson, which is a small city outside of New York. But this small city have exactly the same problems like big city. There is a racism, there is a corruption, there is a bad things, good things, uh, manipulation, you know, just everything like any other city, but on the small scale. So if these citizens of that city are my first visitors of the Institute and go through this, this uh, you know, kind of preparation of their consciousness, and if we can influence the change in them, we are creating big picture, we are creating kind of model of different society that can be applied to somewhere else. And this is such a big, big, big aim which I'm trying to achieve on the really small scale because it's so easy to always criticize how things are not good around you. But what you can do personally and how you can change something in even like pioneering steps. So this is my proposal, the Institute for Long Durational Immaterials Form of Art and also science and technology. But immaterial forms of art are everything, including opera and dance and film and video and performance and the, the, the theater, everything which is time-based. So when you arrive in the institute, first you have to sign this contract that you're going to stay six hours and you give me word of honor. And of course, if you went go earlier, you don't respect your word of honor. It's not my problem. But you give me six hours which one you left, you leave your watch, you leave your computer, you leave your, all this belonging to remind you of technology and time, and you gain six hours for your own self to experiment something different. And then you come with this experience that you see if you can use at least part of it in your own life, whatever you do, whatever kind of job you do in your life, from the, you know, cleaning of the street or being farmer or science fiction writer or, or Bangladeshi housewife. You take this experience with you and see what can you do something with that.
Do you think this is a? Do you read it as a performance piece? What? Sorry. Do you, Do you see it as a performance piece? Do you? No, I see. And it's you know, I don't know. Performance is such a large theme, and and is includes so much things, but also misunderstanding. No, I think it's more like a it's more like a conditioning, human being, uh, to see presence here and now in different way. So I really think that all which I'm trying to do now, even with serpentine work, I don't even know is art. I don't know what it is. I only know that that we could not do this kind of stuff ten years ago, and I know that the, that now because people are doing it, that we have enormous need of the personal experience on personal level, that we want to change something about ourselves, that we have to kind of get centered in some way because we we are, we become consumer junkies. We 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 are lost, and uh, the, if we don't go back to really simplicity, things are going wrong. Before um, before the cameras started rolling, you said uh, that technology sucks, um, but you cleverly used Kickstarter to raise the initial funds for the institute. Um, some like staunch uh, supporters of yours have been um, cross that you did this. Can you can you talk a little bit about? I I think that this is the wrong way I I maybe express myself that the, the technology sucks because technology is good technology is invented that human beings have time is our our relation to technology who doesn't work because we absolutely don't take that free time because we are afraid of free time we don't know what to do with the free time and we're just kind of getting more and more trapped with the more and more technology and this is our own mistake not mistake of technology Kickstarter is a great tool. And such a wonderful invention that you can, you know, measure the uh, participation of the large audience uh, with to see if they really like your idea and they like to support. And I, in one month, I had a huge support, more than you know, close to five five thousand people give the small donations and uh, anything between one dollar to fifty, sixty. And the largest donations are ten thousand. And if we, to see that really this institute, they wanted to, to actually be built and to want them to, to be part of it. And it was really interesting rewards because mostly when people do Kickstarters, you know, they give lots of rewards like a t-shirts, you know, DVDs, uh, whatever, all kinds of different uh, tickets to the theater of the performances. But my rewards was very, very, um, um, the, how you call it, immaterial. I will sit in the front of the, of the television, of the of the screen, and look somebody in the eyes for one hour in New Zealand, or I will, you know, talk to the people on the phone, or I will hug them. I just hug for the reward in Kickstarter in New York, six hundred people, and I hug three hundred in London in the front of Serpentine. Just simple hug, really, just kind of energy exchange, and. Uh, this is for the smaller reward, but the highest reward of Kickstarter is $10,000. So for $10,000, the reward was you're not mentioned and you don't get anything at all. And this was kind of an important lesson, you know, to teach people to believe in the project and not because they wanted to have a recognition. Recognition is a, is a, a really interesting segue into, um, you've been collaborating very uh, strategically, it seems, with with sort of bigger brands, whether it's um, Lady Gaga um, or the Adidas film, 
Um, I think you're about to do something with James Franco. Can you talk a little bit about um, why you've started to engage in the world in that way, with the world in that way? First of all, I didn't build strategy around this. It's just spontaneously things happen. I mean, Lady Gaga was the first thing. No, actually, James Franco. James Franco just came to me. He was uh, at that time, uh, you know, an MIT uh, student. And he came to me and told me that he study my work and he'd like to know more. And we become friends. So just came in that way. And then he was inviting me to, to MIT to give a class, which I did. And, uh, and really quite impressed by his personality. I'm so impressed by James Franco, this enormous need to do everything without having always great results. He's more interested in process and experimenting things and without always have really recognition and almost, you know, kill himself <laughs> with this kind of stuff. But I love that. I like, I hate people who do always the same thing over and over and again and never explore the new territories. And, you know, if you want to explore new territories, you have to you have to think of failures. And he failed so many times, and he just go on and do it again and again and again. And that kind of um, kind of amount of energy and uh, curiosity he he explore is very fascinating for me. But a lot like you. It, yeah, because that that's I see similarity, and and I really like I like that you know, just go for it and and see what is on the other side. How we can know what is the other side if you didn't make the journey? We have to make this journey. And Lady Gaga came to, to my performance in, in, in the, um, I never met her before, you know, to see artists is present. She never sit in the front of me. But because she was there, every Twitter, you know, the kids tweet around and then hundreds of young kids came any age from 14, 16, 15 to see the, to see the, uh, Lady Gaga. And then Lady Gaga left. And these kids stay as my public and increase the number of visitors. It was like a gift for me because I need to reach everybody. I don't want my public anymore is not just artist public. My public is much larger than art, art, art public. And then, you know, the two, the year later after the, the performance is present, she called my office and asked if I can give her the, the, uh, you know, the my clean the house course, which I give to my performance, uh, you know, students, and I'm teaching was teaching more than 25 years. And she came to my place very humble, and she said she would like to do that for five five days. And she was great student. And then, of course, everything was on the web, and she had 45 million, you know, the the followers. I they all start, the, you know, looking to the website. What is the Bramwich method? What is the institute? What 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 is this all about? And became my my followers. So I think this is really something that for me is wonderful because I really like to teach and to learn, to, to learn people, to give unconditional my knowledge to everybody who want to. So I have this large public now and it's increasing more and more. And you come to my lecture and you come wherever I'm doing things, you know, my generation is very rarely there. And anyway, my generation depressed me completely. So it's always young people and that's my new public. And I'm very grateful to for that. Why did your generation depress you? First of all, they always think that daytime is the best ever. <laughs> they don't <laughs> trust that anything is happening new and great right now. And, uh, and I don't know, they, you know, they compromised themselves. They didn't, uh, I don't compromise in my life much. And, uh, and I'm always interested in new things. 
and then they they they're kind of old. They think old. They're not curious enough. They don't tell my. I'm 68. I mean, two years 70. I mean, I should be now in pension and doing nothing, and I, I work like hell. And my and the young generation give me sense of time and spirit of time that I can tap into it, and I can give them my experience, and it's wonderful change. And somehow, all generation around me doesn't do the same. What I can do. Let's um let's talk a little bit about uh the the work your work specifically um you you spent a lifetime um pushing yourself to to the very very limit of what's possible physically just forty years <laughs> just forty years um do, what so you think you just started when you were what twenty I my first actually I, I say forty but it's more because I actually my first show was when I was twelve. I had the painting of my dreams, and I was so always jealous of Mozart, who started when he was six. But what you can do, I done with. I start with twelve. What? And it was a painting. Yeah, I paint. I was. It, I. I was. I was painting since I was born, and I paint the dreams because it was given to me. And later on, you know, I done different things, and then I stopped painting in my twenties, and start working with the sound, installations, performance, and different medium. But you've never you've never engaged with um, easy subjects. You've always pushed yourself. Uh, I read that that car crashes inspired you when you began. Um, you know, you're famous for um, laying weapons out on a table or objects out on a table in front of you and, and allowing an audience to do whatever it is that they want to do to you. You've really you've pushed and pushed and pushed. Um, and you've you've talked a lot about uh, your your views on pain and, and self-inflicted pain, but I don't know that you've talked much about pleasure. But the pleasure is, on the other side, when you finish all that, this incredible deep satisfaction that you went through the hardship on the other side and learned from it, there is the pleasure. Because it's so easy to do things you like, you never change anything, and you never push into any other new territory. But when you go through this and you come to the other side it's it's indescribable pleasure that's something i live for and is that is that what propels you to keep making the work that feeling at the end when you're finished and it's over and no it's what makes me make you know first of all i was very lucky to have very strong sense of mission why you know i think that every human being should ask himself why he's here what we are doing here and and so much people lose time in just in research and finding themselves. Somehow, I always want to do something that I can lift human spirit and change consciousness of myself and others. And that kind of incredible kind of um, um, motivation always brings me to to something that I have to push new territories. Well, you have to know, you know, you have to you have to go to unknown, otherwise. You, you will never know. My favorite story is always the story of um, Columbus who went to Del Hierro with the convicts descent from the from the queen of the Spain to uh, with him on the very small little boat to find the new way to bring spices from India. And in those days, the, our entire planet was the scientists was thinking there's just the one plate that you can fall off. So can you imagine this last last night having the dinner with the, with his crew on this little island, El Hierro, going to completely unknown, 
that you can actually fall from the planet Earth. I think that's incredible courage. And they did it. And they just, oops, they found America. <laughs> How, if they didn't make the journey, they will not find America. So that kind of journey is so interesting to me. Um, what do you think you're trying to find? As I said, I'm not, I'm always on to know what is other side. And I think that, that human brain didn't change for 30,000 years. Technology is changing all the time. We can't, we can't follow anything. But human brain, we know only 30% what it is. We have so much to go deeper inside. We are universe to find a way how we can use telepathy, how we can use extrasensory perception, how we can use all facilities that we actually are don't doing it because we become invalids of technology because we don't even know how to count without using the computer. I, we have to go back to ourselves. And that's this universe that you have to research. Do you think that there's uh, anything else y you could have done if you hadn't been an artist? Is there any other path you could have taken? Astronaut, for sure. I am definitely interested in the different solar systems and galaxies and so on. That's absolutely, you know, sky. This is, if I will do anything, if I, if I, if it just can accept me to go to any of the spaceships, in just and go to the out of our galaxy into unknown and never be returned, I will be one of the passengers.